Hi, and welcome to the church at Lake Mead, and this is our sermon podcast. Today is October 17th, and Pastor Brad Blakely starts a new sermon series called Descending into Greatness. Let's drop in now. Well, this morning, uh, as as was said, we're starting a new series today. And it is a series that um, I've been excited about the last few months, um, thinking about this series and it's, it's coming out of a, a place of study and devotion. The Lord just revealed some things to me. And when, when that happened, I was just, I was really taken back. And I can't wait to share it all with you over the next three weeks. And so um, the title of this series is uh, entitled Descending into Greatness. Descending into Greatness. And so I want to just start this morning um, asking you to think about the concept of greatness for a minute. And when you think of that word greatness, and you think about uh, what greatness is, what images come to your mind, what thoughts, what synonyms to the word greatness come to your mind? Um, maybe people that you consider great. Um, maybe that, that's an image that comes to your mind or maybe an accomplishment. Uh, maybe when you were watching the Olympics this last summer, you know, um, those amazing feats of, you know, athletic ability, that's great, right? And you look at that and like, man, that's amazing. That's great, you know? Greatness uh, can be connected to um, people's accomplishments. It can be connected to people that you admire, you know? And it depends on why you might admire people for different reasons than someone else does, right? And we all might have maybe differences of, of what, how we would define greatness but I want to talk to you about greatness in this series, in this series from a biblical point of view. Um, but before I do, as we think about our modern concept of greatness and why we would say some things are great or some people are great, I want to remind us of the ancient culture from where the Bible springs, right? Because in the ancient world, greatness was all the rage. In fact, there was a, uh, a constant competition uh, to be great, and to be known as great in your culture and in your society. It was true in the, both the, the Jewish world and in the Roman world. Um, there was this uh, shame and honor culture. And so for, for people living in that kind of culture, uh, the most important thing was for you to have honor, for you to bring honor to yourself, to your family, to your country. And, and the, the, most, the most thing you wanted to avoid would be shame or dishonor. In fact, it was more important to die with honor than to live with shame, right? And, and that's not quite how it is today. I'm gonna to talk about today's culture in a second. In fact, there's a, uh, there's a, a, a Jewish philosopher um, and he writes, it is better to die than to beg. This is in uh, Shiraz uh, 40 verses 28 through 30. And so uh, this idea that in that culture, in that day, whether you were Greek, Roman, Jew, it didn't matter. They all shared a common idea of really what life was about. Life was about honor. Life was about being great and being known as great. And that's stratified the culture, right? You had the haves and you had the have-nots. You had the people that had the wealth and the prestige and the status, right? And the honor that was associated with that. And then you had those who didn't have those things. 
You had the people who were dependent upon the benefactors, dependent upon those who had the wealth and the status and the honor. In fact, there was this, there was this kind of reciprocity that would happen in the culture. A wealthy benefactor would pay for the roads to be paved or some public work because they didn't have the system we have today. And so what they would expect from the poor was honor. They would, they would re- expect the poor to honor them with public celebrations. They would put a statue, they'd put a, a memorial and the, and the poor that received the benefit of the wealthy person's investment were to honor them. It was this kind of back and forth connection. Now today in our culture, it's not that we don't care about honor, right? We do. Um, no one really doesn't want to have people respect them, right? But in our culture, what's far more important to us is that we experience pleasure and prosperity, right? That's really what's important. In fact, you can think I'm, I'm a jerk, but if I'm, ha- if I'm smoking a cigar on my yacht, I don't really care, right? Because the truth is, that's what our culture prizes. Our, our culture prizes someone who has made it. And what we mean by making it is someone who's, you know, kind of eat, drink, and be merry, you know, the rest of their life. That's the kind of culture we live in today. And so in our culture, not only do we prize prosperity and pleasure, The thing we hate more than shame in our culture is suffering and poverty, right? Uh, It would be much better in our culture for people to not like us or people to not, you know, think well of us as long as we're not suffering or or in poverty. So the the kind of the axis of, of kind of wealth and making it in our country has shifted since the, since the earlier days. But I want to go back to this idea of boasting, of, of greatness, of kind of honor in that first century. Because it was all the rage, because it was the thing that the elites sought after more than anything else, when the Romans like defeated another, another kingdom, they would, they would do what was called a triumphal procession. They would line up the enemy that they've just defeated. They would put them in chains. And if you could imagine, they would just parade them through the city of Rome. In fact, Julius Caesar is famous for four triumphal processions during his tenure as, as a general. But, the, but the, probably the one who's the most famous is a, is a general named Pompey who just delighted in making each procession even more lavish than the, than the one previous. I believe one of his processions lasted three days long. Can you picture that? Just, just like bringing through the city of, of Rome, just the enemy army and all of them in chains. And at the very end, it would be the king of that, of that kingdom and just embarrassed as he's drugged through the city in shame, right? Now, now today we would never imagine that. We could not imagine a country doing such a thing to another nation after a victory in battle, but that was just common coin in the first century. And one of the most famous Caesars and probably the most successful was Caesar Augustus. And he's the Caesar alive during the time of Jesus's birth. Caesar Augustus says at near the end of his life, he decided that the people of, of Rome needed to know just how great he was uh, in case there was any doubt. So he decided to write a list of his accomplishments. This is known as the raised jesty. And it's a list of 35 paragraphs 
all carved in stone. In Latin, it was 2,500 words long. Can you imagine how hard it would have been to carve that in stone? And this guy had, it was such an egomaniac. He made those plaques and he posted them all throughout the Roman Empire. 35 paragraphs of all the accomplishments of the great Caesar Augustus. And so as, I, as I'm saying, that's just the culture. That's just what you did. If you were on top, you had no problem letting people know. That's what greatness meant in the first century. So with that all as kind of a setup, I want to show you a clip, a little tiny clip from the end of a, sports, a, sport, a sporting event. And I want you to see kind of how that feels today. So watch this clip and we'll get into the sermon. Watch this. Let's send you down to the field and Aaron Andrews. Joe, thank you so much. Richard, let me ask you the final play. Take me through it. Well, I'm the best corner in the game. When you try me with a sorry receiver like Crabtree, that's the result you're going to get. Don't you ever talk about me. Who was talking about you? Crabtree, don't you open your mouth about the best. Or you're going to shut it for you real quick. L.O.B. All right, before... And Joe, back over to you. All right, well, we saw... Okay. Now, I'm not here to like criticize Richard Sherman, uh, but you know, that's weird, right? That's not what you expect at the end of a football game today, right? You don't expect someone to let you know he's the greatest it, that ever played that position. And you know, you kind of feel bad for him. I mean, I guess Crabtree was living re rent free in his head for a while and he couldn't wait to let everyone know that he's better than Crabtree, you know? Like, okay, right? And so I, I point that out this morning, right? Not, again, not to, you know, criticize Richard Sherman, but just to point out that our culture has shifted. That, that, that honestly, today, we expect humility in victory, right? We expect the people who are great not to lord it over others, but we expect modesty. We expect someone to say, man, I wanna tell you right now, that guy was a great, a great uh, opponent. He was a great competitor. And, and man, he's a great player. And I was really, really just fortunate to come out on top today. I mean, isn't that the kind of experience that we're used to at the end of a speech, like at the end of a, of a, of a game, right? And so when we don't see that, here's all I'm, all I'm you know, kind of bringing to our attention this morning. When we don't see that, we think, man, that's, that's weird. But here's my point. 2000 years ago, that wouldn't have been weird. 2,000 years ago, that's, that's expected. 2,000 years ago, no one was modest in their victories. No one was humble when they were on top. So here's my question. How did things change? How did we go to a, from, from a culture of honor and shame, a culture that lorded over the losers, right? To a culture that expects leaders to be humble, to, that expects humility and modesty in times of, of, of victory. There's a historian, his name is John Dixon. And he says, the first time you ever see in all history and all literature that he's aware of, you see a connection between greatness and servanthood or greatness and humility is in a, uh, a document written around 60 AD. It's a letter that was written to a Roman colony at Philippi. And it's written by a man named St. Paul. And I wanna read to you an excerpt of this letter. And this is where we're gonna, study this morning. Look at this letter. It's Philippians chapter two, verse five. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, 
being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Scholars believe that, that when Paul is writing this letter, that this, this portion of the letter was a pre-existing song or creed. It existed prior to the letter. It may have been sung by the early church. It may have been chanted or recited as a creed. We're not quite sure, but it's, it stands out in the form of the letter. It stands out as a citation. It has a, a, a balance to it. It has a, a rhythm to it, a cadence. And so it's very likely that this was something that the early church knew of. And so Paul quotes this when he's encouraging the early church to have a certain attitude, a certain mindset among themselves. I wanna kind of go back to the text. We're gonna look at it piece by piece. Kind of digest it. Look what he says in verse five. Back to verse five, it says, in your relationships with one another, in the way you relate to each other, in the way you relate to your spouse, in the way you relate to your children, in the way you relate to each other here at church, in the way you relate to your, your colleagues at work, in the way you relate in life, he's saying, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul wants the disciples at Philippi to have the same mindset that Jesus had. So what was that mindset? What was the mindset that Jesus had? Well, that's what he goes on to talk about, this incredible action of Jesus, this incredible, as we're gonna see, descent into greatness. And I wanna say this as we get started, our actions are what reveals our mindset. If I wanna know what your mindset is, if I wanna know where your mind is, I wanna know what you're thinking about, if I wanna know like really what's kind of on your mind, all I have to do is watch how you act, right? Because your actions always are derivative of where your mind's at. You can say all day long certain things, but we all know talk is cheap, don't we? It's how you actually play it out. What you actually do, it really indicates who you are, actually are and where your mind really is. And so Paul is, he's, he's not looking for talk. He's, he's talk is cheap. He's, he wants to show you the actions of Jesus and he wants to let those actions inform how you act. So let's look at these actions in more detail. He says, so in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, here it is, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Now I wanna point this out, Jesus, this is, a, this is part of the reason that this little passage of scripture has probably more written about it than anything else Paul has written. This little tiny hymn in Philippians have, has more scholarly interest, more commentaries, more journal articles than probably anything else Paul's written because the very beginning of this little tiny song talks about Jesus who is God. Paul unapologetically without any kind of like preparation, he doesn't really prepare the audience for this. He just comes right out with it. And he says, Jesus, who is in very nature, God. Even though he was in very nature God, 
The text says he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Christ actually possessed the status of being God. And yet he didn't use that status to his own advantage. Remember, we were talking a minute ago about the culture. And we got to remember that the, the New Testament is embedded in, in this culture, this culture of honor and shame, this culture of status and the privileges associated with that status. And so this was very, very keen in the, in the reader's uh, mind when, when Paul is referring to a status that Jesus had intrinsically, a status that he, that he owned, right? He's in very nature God. That would have really raised their eyebrows. Wow. Jesus has the ultimate status. And yet in that ultimate status, he doesn't consider it something to be used for his own advantage. Look at the next verse. He says, uh, yeah, hit the next one. Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Here's the next verse. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. That word servant is doulos, could be translated slave. Same word, being made in human likeness. And so we, remember I told you this is a pre-existing hymn or poem. And you see the balance here. We're to, we're to note that there's balance. The very nature God is parallel as the antithesis to very nature servant. You can't get any more of an antithesis in this poem than to note on the one hand, Jesus is in very nature God, but doesn't use that status to his own advantage and instead takes upon himself a new nature, the nature of a slave. And so we see this nature of a slave being made in a human likeness. Hit that next one for me. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So in this Roman world, there was something known as the cursus honorarium. And I've been kind of referring to this. It's the Latin for the Roman, Roman elites race for honors. And scholars say this is the opposite of the cursus honorarium. This is the, the cursus podorium, which means the downward succession of ignominies. In other words, Jesus isn't racing to the top. He's racing to the bottom. Jesus is descending into greatness. I want to show this to you. I want to map it for you. You know, I love my diagrams. Here's the diagram. Then the first step that we see in this text, we have Jesus who is in very nature God. He becomes man. He takes on a human form. This is known to theologians as the incarnation. This is when God takes on flesh. And this is mind-blowing. This is the biggest step in the steps down. So step one was Jesus' step from his very nature, God, to becoming man. Look at the next step, though. Not only does he step into humanity, but Jesus steps into humanity. And as a human, he steps down even further into a slave. You know, you think about it, right? If God is becoming human which is mind-blowing. I mean, think about that, mind-blowing. At, at least he could become 
a human king, right? At least he, he could become a human and, and live in the highest status among us, right? Isn't that what we would expect if, if God bothered with us? I mean, think about that. Why does he even give us a second glance? I don't know. But if he's at least willing to bother with a bunch of little humans on a little speck rotating around some star in this giant, you guys get what I'm saying? Like if he's even willing to bother with us, well, of course he's gonna, if he's gonna come into our world anyway, come into a palace, but he doesn't. He becomes a slave. And now let's look at the third step down. The third step is amazing. It's almost... It's almost indescribable because not only does he become a slave, but he becomes crucified. Jesus takes not only on human flesh and takes on the lowest position among all of us, but then dies in such a cruel and humiliating way that there's just no other words to describe it other than another step downward. I want to point this out to you. As God, he, Jesus took on flesh. So let that sink in your mind. As God, Jesus was God, he took on flesh. But check this out. As man, or as a human, as a man, Jesus took on the cross. I have no idea what it would be like for God to take on flesh I can't get my mind around the infinity becoming man, right? I can't get my mind around that. I can't understand how a being with no limits could actually voluntarily limit himself into my, into my weaknesses, into our weaknesses, right? That's mind-blowing, right? But I can, I can understand this next one because I am a human. And this part that I can understand, I can't understand. You with me on this? Like, I love you, I love my, but can you imagine out of love for someone else, no matter how dear they are, you let someone flog you publicly, you let someone stretch your arms out on a cross, pull your clothes off for all to mock and nail you to a cross to let the world laugh until your life drips out. Can you picture that? Like, I can't imagine this. The three steps down. Scholar Michael Gorman, he says this. This is powerful stuff. He says, the imitation of Jesus, then to which Paul calls his readers, presupposes a wholesale inversion of the relational orientation of the dominant culture. Particularly as we have seen it realized in the social verticality of the colony of, of Rome, Let me, of the Roman colony. Let me explain this. He says, basically, Paul is telling these people at Philippi to take everything they know and flip it upside down. Instead of racing to the top to be great, instead of getting up there and letting everyone know, hey man, I'm here and you're not, you race to the bottom because in the bottom is where greatness is. Jesus empties himself of the privileges that his status afforded him and voluntarily, for love's sake, takes our place. Come on, somebody, that's Jesus. 
Come on, somebody, that's our savior. Come on, somebody, he did that for you. You're worthy. You're worthy of his love. His love makes you worthy. Here's the, here's the, here's the quote, or here's the summary so far. Jesus denied himself the privileges of his divine status. Why? Why? So that you and I could benefit. So that you and I could benefit. Scholars have long, long drawn a connection between what Paul writes in Philippians 2 and to what something John writes in John chapter 13. Because sometimes when you're studying like something like this, it's a little abstract, right? Like, what does that mean? God become man, Jesus became a slave, slave on the cross, like, whoa, right? It's a little abstract, a little high. So scholars have long noted that there's this really interesting connection. It's almost as if John wants to illustrate what Paul's writing here in Philippians. Let's look at Philippians or John chapter 13, check this out. This is right before the Passover. It says, verse two, the evening meal was in progress. This is the last supper. The devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simeon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had put all things into his power. So I want you to picture this. Jesus knows. He knows the score. He knows what's about to go down. He knows that Judas has already got it in his head. He's gonna betray him. But he also, also knows, come on, man. He also knows all power has been given to him. Jesus is not at all confused about who he is. He knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly what he's about to do. He is not surprised about the cross. He is not surprised that Judas is about to betray him. And so here's what happens. He knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. Jesus knows this. Look what happens, verse four. So he got up from the meal. And he took off his outer clothing. You guys starting to catch it, connect it? Jesus knows who he truly is. He knows his true identity. But in that status of who he is, having come from the Father, going to return to the Father, all powers underneath him, what does he do in that moment of, of knowing fully who he is? He takes off his outer clothing. If you were to walk into that last supper, no one tells you what's going on. You're just a fly on the wall and you're just watching. You know, it's kind of like one of those sci-fi movies where you get to travel back in time and no one sees you there, but you get to watch stuff. Like that'd be cool, right? You're there and you're watching and you, you see all of a sudden somebody stand up and take off their outer robe. Look what happens next. And he wraps a towel around his waist. He wraps himself with a servant's towel. Are you catching this? Are you seeing this church? God taking off his outer clothing to take on a servant's towel. He then bows down and you know the story. He starts to wash their feet. Can you picture that? If you and I were there kind of cloaked is that a good sci-fi word? We're watching it. No one sees us. If you don't know what cloaking is, it's like when you're invisible, you know? Okay, you guys aren't catching that today. And I want to say, hey, who's the servant in this room? Point to who you think the servant is. Who would you point to? And you would be wrong, but you'd also be right. Because the servant in the room 
isn't the servant at all. He's the Lord of glory, wrapped in a servant's towel, washing feet. He ends that night and he says this, verse 12, he says, when he was finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned. Man, I wanna preach that. You see, Jesus, he took on our frailty, but friends, he put back on his rightful position and he's returning, man. Come on, man, Jesus is returning. This time when he returns, man, he's gonna be the lion of Judah. He was already the suffering servant. He was already the lamb slain, but he will be the lion of Judah. Man, I wanna talk about that a minute, come on. And he said this, he says, do you understand? And I bet you they didn't. They probably haven't got a clue. I didn't spend the time here, but we know Peter has no clue. If you know the, you, if you know the story, you know Peter has no clue. What are you doing, <laughs> right? He's like, don't wash me, wash all of me. Like Peter does not know what's going on, right? And so he says, look, you call me teacher. And Lord, notice this, and rightly, you're right. That's my status. That's who I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you, everybody in this room say it, I have set you what? An example. This is how I want you to live. This is the illustration of Philippians 2. This is the theology of Philippians 2 put into a practical illustration. Wow, that's what Philippians 2 looks like. Philippians 2 looks like the, the king of kings taking off his outer garment and taking on a, a servant's robe or a servant's towel to wash the dirty, disgusting feet that we have in that room. That's what it looks like. That's what Jesus did for us, church. In fact, guys, I can't emphasize enough how this turned everything upside down in the first century. After this moment, after this moment in human history, like leadership never looked the same. You can do your own research, but John Dixon, this historian, he traces the, the, the collision between servanthood and leadership. He traces it all through human history. He says, look guys, there is only one place where that intersected and forever leadership changed. And it's with Jesus of Nazareth. He changed history by turning upside down what greatness looked like. Man, that's amazing. Is it only history nerds that think that's amazing? Guys, that's amazing that Jesus impacted human history. The reason today, when we see someone who's arrogant, we're like, dude, come on, really? It's, you don't even have to be a Christian to, to feel that way because our culture has been changed because of Jesus. Man, that's powerful stuff. In fact, this was so just alien to the Roman mind I wanna show you kind of an interesting graffiti that was found. So guys in the back, you're gonna to have to help me here. I wanna show you what was discovered in, in the 1800s in a prison cell, or it's in, it was in a gladiatorial like dormitory. This is known as the Alexamanos Graffatio. So let's look at this picture. Um, Cause I love history, right? This, this graffiti, the Alexamanos Graffatio was discovered on a cell. And underneath, this is a, like, you know, so you can read it better. You have these words. Alexamanos, uh, go back one for me. Worships his God. This is uh, probably a Roman soldier 
who's being mocked by other Roman soldiers. This graffiti dates probably to the late second century. It's pretty awesome. Why is this awesome? Well, you have this Christian who's being mocked and Christians were mocked. On the cross is a donkey headed Jesus. Donkey headed Jesus, I, I can't get into all the reasons why it was represented that way, but obviously unflattering, right? And so here's the point. Alexa Manos, this kid, this guy, is being mocked because he worships a God who would be crucified. If you're a Roman, you cannot fathom worshiping any kind of God like that, right? Because who are the gods of Rome? Zeus, Mars, Poseidon, right? These are powerful beings that you just didn't mess with, right? These are not gods who stoop down, right? These are not gods who do anything like what Jesus is doing or anything like what Christians are saying God does. And so he's being mocked. In the cell next to him, these words were found. And we don't know if it's the same person, but it sure seems like it. It's the same guy. Hit the next one. Alexa Manos, the faithful. So someone knew that this guy was feeling some heat for his worship of a crucified God. And probably another Christian brother says, no, yeah, you, you mock Alexa Manos, but Alexa Manos is faithful. Alexa Manos is faithful. I wanna show you a text over in Philippians chapter, or I'm sorry, over in 1 Corinthians chapter one. And I wanna show you this because in 1 Corinthians chapter one, here's what Paul says about preaching. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But look at this. But we preach Christ crucified. And when we preach Christ crucified, that's a stumbling block to Jews. And that's foolishness. As I said, these, these Romans, these Greeks, they couldn't picture you worshiping a God who would be crucified, a God who would be humiliated in such a way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says these words. He says, follow my example as I follow Christ. Follow my example. So I wanna spend the last part of our time as we conclude today, kind of practically put, putting something out there for you. What do I want you to take home in this first sermon? I want you to, I want you to take this home. The true greatness is humility. The true greatness is when you have status that's rightly yours and you are willing to lay aside the privileges of your status because of love's sake and the benefit of someone else. That's exactly what Jesus does. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter nine, Paul outlines his pattern of doing just that. He's following the pattern of Jesus. He's, he's writing in that text and we're not gonna spend time looking at it, but he's writing that text that as an apostle, he could have taken an offering from the church. He could have collected money from that church, but for a year and a half, instead of collecting money from that church to support himself, he decided he would make tents and support his own ministry. As an apostle, he had the right to collect money, but because he's following Jesus and the spirit led him in that instance for that year and a half, he wasn't gonna take a dime from them. So he let go of his privilege and instead for love's sake, so it wouldn't be a stumbling block to those disciples in Corinth, he supports his own ministry. That's an example of humility. That's an example of running to the bottom. That's an example of saying, listen, I could be an apostle. It doesn't matter. I'm a tent maker by day and I'm an apostle by night. Come on, that's awesome. Man, that's humility. That's humility. 
But there's one more thing that the Christ hymn of chapter two reveals, and we're gonna end here. And this is the thing that broke my heart when I started studying it. I was reading this book for a class I'm taking. I'm studying uh, Philippians chapter two, read this book. And, the, and I've read this passage many times. It wasn't new, but then this hit me and I never ever noticed this before. In chapter two, I wanna look at the very end of the passage. It says, therefore, God exalted him, exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You say, okay, Brad, what's, what's so powerful about that? Well, Michael Gorman writes these words. He says, God the Father is not rewarding Jesus for doing a good job. He isn't rewarding Jesus for enduring the cross. And because he endured the cross, he now gets a new status. He gets this name above every name, right? That isn't what is happening in the Christ hymn. This is not a reward for doing a good job. What's happening at the end of the Christ hymn is the father is saying to the world, listen now, Jesus has the name above every name. Every knee is gonna bow and every tongue is gonna confess. Here's why. Because Jesus has perfectly revealed who Yahweh is. God, listen, is a humble God. When you look at the Christ hymn, it's really not about Jesus. It's really about God. It's who God really is. God is the God who would suffer for you. God is the God who would take on flesh so that you and I could be saved. God is the God who is humble. And so church, as we start this series on descending into greatness, I'm making a connection here, guys that to embrace humility is to embrace greatness. God is humble. And to follow the example of Jesus, to take steps, to forsake your own status and your own privilege for love's sake so you could serve another is to embrace what true greatness is. And I wanna tell you, Jesus did that for you. If you've never trusted Jesus, I know when you first hear a message like this, it's almost hard to believe. How can God love me that much? How can God really do that for me? I don't even love myself that much. In fact, if I'm being honest, I have a lot of things I'm ashamed of. And, and, and the thought that God would love me that much is almost, it's almost, it's almost overwhelming, almost crushing. I almost wanna turn away from that because, because really he would die for me. Church, we're gonna sing this incredible song of response right now. Man, these lyrics could not be more perfect for what we just meditated on. I want us to stand right now. Would you stand with me? Guys, we're gonna just take a minute to sing back to the Lord what we just heard. If you've never trusted Jesus, if you've never bowed your knee to this King, this King who would wash your feet, I wanna invite you this morning to, to cry out to Jesus, to invite Jesus to be your savior. So church, let me tell you how the end of this sermon is gonna go, the end of this service is gonna go. We're gonna sing this song. At the very end, I'm gonna open up the service again for prayer because we are gonna keep doing that. 
If you need prayer in just a minute, you're going to have an opportunity.